the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. Listeners, I am Lee Johnson, and I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, Rick Lee and Jason Reed. And today we're going to be talking about the allegory of the cave short poetic investigation into the effects of learning on our nature written by the president of philosophers against poets himself uh, better known by his pen name plato but before we do that let's get everybody's drink orders and rants or raves rick let's go to you first what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about this week today i'm in the mood for a negroni an old classic but a goodie And this week, I am raving about the students in my medieval 294 class. I had just the most delightful bunch of students who worked really hard, wrote really nice essays by and large. Our discussions were insightful and exciting. And so I'm raving about those students. And if you're listening, yes, I'm raving about you as well. Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Jason, that's hard to follow. But what are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? And keep in mind that your students are listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm just going to have a coffee because uh, I was traveling yesterday and I'm having trouble just waking up from a long night mm. and need a little more than my usual caffeine. And on that, I am going to rant about airline travel. I mean, there's so much to rant about when it comes to airline travel, but specifically the way in which everyone on the plane believes that they are an exception to the Mm -hmm. rule they hope everyone else follows. Everyone thinks that they can be the one to bring more luggage into the cabin. (laughs) Everyone thinks if they go out of their turn, it's no big deal. Everyone thinks that if it's just them and you watch the cumulative effect of everyone thinking it's just them as you spend forever sitting on the ground as people try to deal with their luggage and try to deal with their seating (laughs) and so on. It's like having to live the trolley problem (laughs) every time you get aboard a plane. (laughs) Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, for my drink, I think I'm going to split the difference between Rick's bar drink and Jason's breakfast drink, and I'm going to have a Bloody Mary today. Ah, nice. Um, I am raving about the novel God's Behaving Badly by Marie Phillips. It's a novel that basically explores the idea of what would happen if the gods of ancient Greece were still alive and living in, I think it's modern day London. And the story is that, of course, they all have these very dysfunctional and petty lives. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's actually hilarious how she recasts them in modern jobs. I mean, Apollo is a television psychic. <laughs> Aphrodite is a dog walker. <laughs> Dionysius is a phone sex operator. But it's just a great novel. And, you know, I actually read this several years ago, weirdly, in an airport. I had picked it up just to have something to read on the plane and had finished it before I even got to my destination. But as happens sometimes, I was cleaning up my living room and one of my cats had knocked it off the shelf. And I was like, oh, and I picked it up again and just blew right through it again. So I highly recommend this. It's called God's Behaving Badly by Marie Phillips. 
So Rick, we're going to be talking about Plato's allegory of the cave today. How did you want to frame this discussion? So we've decided after our episode on the section from Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals that it's kind of fun for us to like take a small piece of text, an important one in the history of philosophy, and go through it. So this week we're going to take a relatively famous story that Plato talks about in The Republic. Now, that book as a whole is about what justice is for the soul. Socrates initially makes an argument that we can figure out what justice is for the soul and what a just soul is if we could look at a larger image of it. And so he proposes we look at the just city. I think it's Plato's longest text by far, and the bulk of the text concerns itself with the construction of this just city. And then along the way, Socrates argues that in a just city, there would have to be a just division of labor, and that would include a category of people who are fit to rule the city. And, quel surprise, these rulers turn out to be philosophers. <laughs> As it should be. <laughs> but this brings up the question of what is it that a philosopher does, and how is it that we could train these people to be philosophers? So long story short, Plato argues that the philosopher contemplates reality, and this reality turns out not to be the reality you're thinking about, namely the world you find around yourself, but rather something he sometimes calls a realm of ideas. So that means that the philosopher has to be trained to contemplate these ideal realities, and this ain't an easy task. <laughs> and so it's in this context that Socrates provides this famous story that comes to be called the allegory of the cave to give a picture of what the philosopher does and how the philosopher might be looked at with scorn by other members of society. I think this is an apology for both Socrates' role in Athens and maybe Plato's own apology for his own role in Athens. <laughs> So right here at the beginning, I think that we have to assume that maybe not everyone, even if they've heard of it, is really familiar with the details of the allegory of the cave. So Rick, I want to ask you to summarize the allegory of the cave for us, but also a point that might be confusing to some of our listeners is in your introduction, you said Plato's allegory of the cave, and then you said Socrates' mm. allegory of the cave, and that might not be clear to everyone whose allegory is this. So if you could just explain those two things, and then we can jump right in. So for Dave and those like Dave out there, Plato <laughs> wrote most of his texts in the form of plays. We normally call them dialogues, and there are characters who were real people who lived in Athens or visited Athens. And one of the recurring characters in these plays is Socrates. And Socrates, usually, I can think of one exception, but Socrates is usually the main character and talks the most and is the one leading the discussion, asking questions and providing arguments and so on. And so in the play, this story is put in the mouth of Socrates, but the play itself is written by Plato. And scholars debate about how close Plato Socrates is to the real Socrates and so on, and we don't need to get in the weeds of that discussion. So in brief, the allegory goes like this. Imagine that there are people deep in a cave, 
and they are sitting down and they are chained so that they cannot look around and they cannot move. And behind them, there is a pathway where people can walk back and forth and they're hidden by a screen. And behind them is a fire. The people chained can only look at the wall in front of them. And so what do they see? They see the shadows cast by the images that people are carrying behind them going back and forth. Plato likens them to puppeteers. Sometimes they make noises and sometimes they don't. So they're walking back and forth and all the prisoners can see are the shadows on the wall. And then he pauses and he asks the people he's talking with, don't you think they would take that as reality? And everyone says, yes, they would definitely take that as reality. But of course, Socrates. (laughs) (laughs) It must be so. (laughs) By the dog, Socrates. (laughs) Um, And then Socrates says, okay, now imagine if we unchained one of the people, force them to turn around. Then they would see the fire. Well, first of all, he says their eyes would have to adjust. They would see the fire. They would see that there were people carrying these things back and forth. And now they would at first be a little bit confused, but they would come to now see that as the reality. And then further imagine that this person is dragged out of the cave, kicking and screaming into the bright light of the sun. And then that person After, again, their eyes would hurt because of the bright light of the sun, which they've never experienced. Once their eyes adjusted, they would now come to think that that was the reality, particularly the sun is the true reality and everything they have been seeing, therefore, is something like the shadows are images of images, images of images of the real reality. Then toward the end of the story, Socrates says, well, okay, now what if we brought that prisoner back down into the cave? And he starts telling the other prisoners, hey, guess what? This isn't reality. These are just shadows. And there are people behind you and they're carrying things back and forth. And by the way, there's a whole world up there that actually is the real world. Socrates says, wouldn't these other people get angry and think that this person was crazy talking about this real world outside of the realm of shadows? And that's pretty much where the story ends. And then Socrates and his partners in this conversation go on to tease out various consequences and details of the story and what that means about philosophy and society and so on. Do I get the picture pretty well? That's exactly it. (laughs) Couldn't agree with you more, Rick. (laughs) It must be so, Rick. (laughs) Well, if you're putting me in the category of Socrates, then I should say, Lee, what do you think the allegory of the cave is? (laughs) (laughs) Dummy. Well, first, let me start off by asking, in your classes, do you talk a lot about the allegory of the cave? Do you read it with your students at all? Does it function for you as an educational tool? I had not taught it for a while, hadn't taught the Republic at all for a while. And last semester, I taught philosophy of literature. So we began with the Republic and began with, as Lee kind of referenced earlier, the kind of quarrel between poets and philosophers. Mm And, you know, one of the things I said to my students in that class is I said, you know, here's the paradox I want you to think about is that I guarantee you when years pass after you've forgotten a lot about this class, if someone says to you, Plato's Republic, the first thing you're going to think of 
is the allegory of the cave. Right. Right? It's mm-hmm. the it's the thing you remember when you've forgotten everything else about the guardians and the soul and whatever else. And so I tried to pose the question, which hopefully we'll get into a little bit, like the odd thing about this allegory is that it is in a text which pretty much argues for the superiority of philosophical slash conceptual ways of arguing and reasoning versus literary representations. Right? And it comes after a very confusing and not very helpful divided line diagram yeah. that tries to do the same thing, but that everyone who's read the book kind of skips over because like, yeah, just, just give me the cave and give me the puppets. Come on. <laughs> Bring on the Muppets. Uh, because it's so much more entertaining and so much more compelling and the other thing I think is interesting about teaching this now is that, you know, Plato wrote this way before there were screens to look at. You know, he kind of beat Gidebor to the punch by a very, very long time. I don't like to play the whole, you know, everything's a footnote to Plato, but on that point, he seemed to have gotten the visual screen versus reality kind of distinction before people even knew what that was. And it does work really well in terms of its ability to give you a figure for everything in Plato's epistemology and ontology, from shadows to puppets to people to fire to the sun, right? It has a great set of hierarchies that can then be imposed on a sort of conceptual schema. So that's that was way too much to say about that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, do you talk about it? Yeah, I also teach it in my classes. I get a lot of mileage out of the allegory of the cave. In my intro classes, I teach it, you know, with a pretty milk toast interpretation that's about how learning is hard and sometimes painful. Yeah. And sometimes we distrust the people who've seen the truth of things that we've not yet seen. And so, you know, it's more of a parable than an allegory in that sense. Mm-hmm also use it in my philosophy of film class for exactly the reasons that Jason was just mentioning there at the end. It does tell us a lot about how to think about sort of the world of cinema. And also, as we all know, it's a trope that's used in a lot of films, The Matrix, probably the most famous among them. And then I have begun using it in my philosophy of technology class because I think it gives us more interesting ways to talk about quote unquote virtual reality mm-hmm. that is not quite real and not quite a shadow and some of the complications that may be missed in what I think is Plato's distinction between the conceptual world and the perceived world mm. that we now can think more seriously about. What about you, Rick? You teach it? I know you're an Aristotle guy, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't often teach it, but going back to things both of you have said, I think I have never taught a course in which some student or other does not bring up this allegory of the cave to illustrate some point of a different philosopher we're talking about. And primarily because, as Jason was saying, there's a side here that has to do with knowledge, right? So these are shadows, but how do we know they're shadows? Is there another reality of which these are shadows? And how would we come to know that? And so there's a whole side of the story that has to do with knowledge, but that's also intimately connected with the story about reality. Like, what is it that we actually constitute as reality? Whenever a student brings it up, I also then focus on the fact that the prisoner who is released from their chains has to be forced to both turn around and be forced to get out of the cave. 
And this is something that I still to this day find incredibly perplexing. Why is it that the person wouldn't naturally turn around? Why isn't it that when the person saw that there was this path leading out of the cave, why don't they just walk over and say, let's see where this goes? Really? That to me does not seem perplexing at all. I mean, given the setup that, of course, Socrates, these people take that world as the real world, you know, it doesn't seem strange to me at all. I mean, I'm just thinking like, for example, when you hear conspiracy theories, right? You're like, no, I'm not even going to go down that rabbit hole with you. You know, thank you. No, thank you. So what do you find strange about it? Well, on the one hand, following just what you said, I think there's an interesting point here about how married we are to natural assumptions we have about what knowledge is and what reality is. And that sometimes, you know, the philosophical word is these are incommensurable, that one can't match on to the other. You know, so if someone tells me that most of the leaders of the Democratic Party in the United States are living off of the blood of infants as a sort of fountain of youth, that notion of reality is completely incommensurable with mine. And and hence, like you, Lee, I can't go there because I don't have even a route to go there. Which is why you have to be dragged kicking and screaming right? <laughs> into the truth. I, I will not be dragged the, into that, into the QAnon reality. But yeah, and so I do think it's interesting that here already in ancient Athens, Plato is talking about the ways in which we become so enamored with, and as I said before, married to our own views about what the world is and what constitutes reality, such that we really do have to be forced away from that. But I worry about this force issue here because the only way to legitimate the use of force is if I already assume that the true reality is something other than the shadows being cast on the back of the cave wall. And then, in a sense, I have the right to force someone out of that reality into the true reality. And that I tend to focus on with students a lot. Like, by what right is this application of force made? I mean, I'm going to argue against this point later in the podcast, but (laughs) let me just right now try to give an account of... I mean, I do ultimately think that that right of force is self-justified. I don't think that there's some kind of transcendental justification Mm. of it. But as an example, I think that, you know, we now know that the more personal interaction we have with people who are different than us, different races, different sexualities, different genders, et cetera, the more accepting and tolerant and cooperative we tend to be Mm. with those people. And so when you think about something like, for example, the desegregation movement, I mean, people were literally forced, kicking and screaming, to sit in classrooms and ride buses and sit at lunch counters with people who were different from them. And the right of force there was justified on the basis of something that hopefully most of us now realize was in fact true, right. but you know, many people couldn't see as true at the time. Yeah, but in a sense, I agree with you, and you know, maybe this is just a quibbling over words, but that right of force is based on a realization of what is true and, and also therefore what is good and just. And I think mm-hmm. at some point we're going to have to talk about the way in which in this story – 
Plato slash Socrates aligns the true with the good and the just. I understand what is true, and on that basis, then, I am legitimate in forcing desegregation, enforcing civil rights, and so on. It's not as if, well, I guess your point, Lee, would be that the truth is self-justifying. I mean, don't forget also that the person being dragged out is being dragged out kicking and screaming. There's a force there. There's a fight there, too. And just like, as you were saying earlier, you know, if someone was trying to drag you into the world of QAnon, you would be exercising force on the basis, (laughs) you know, of your self-justified, you know, truth of what the world really is. And, you know, that manifests itself as the violence of kicking and screaming and maybe not dragging, but at least fighting against being dragged. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that the pain that Plato focuses on, the pain of adjustment, adjustment to light and adjustment back to darkness, is an interesting pain in sort of the world of human pain because Mm -hmm. it is relative, it's temporary, Mm. and right, you go out into the light after being in a dark room, you eventually adjust and it's like the pain didn't even exist. It's only the pain of a moment of transition. As Mm. Hegel would say, no scars are left behind. Yes. (laughs) I do think about what you guys are saying in terms of like this idea that the truth justifies that kind of violence or force. Like the question I have is like, are the people in the cave – living to some extent an impoverished life that they're being liberated from. Mm. I mean, they have shadows to look at, echoes. I have some huge questions about how they deal with eating, going to the bathroom, (laughs) how they don't notice what I imagine the massive cramping in their legs and all those other things. Can we say they're oppressed just because they're dwelling in the realm of shadows We don't seem to think there's anything else being done. I mean, they're chained, so that's in some sense oppression, but they don't know that they're chained, right? Right, They don't resist their chains. Is the politics of this allegory only the politics of truth, of the idea that it is better to live in truth than to live in falsity, or is there another political dimension to it? Yeah, sorry, but I did leave this out of my account, although it was implicit, is that these prisoners in the cave, they have been there their entire lives. So the conceit of the story is they've never experienced anything else other than this. By the way, how does this one who's freed walk out if they've never walked in their entire life? (laughs) Yes, where's the kicking? How does he kick? (laughs) With their floppy legs. Um, I think, Jason, you point to an interesting feature of this, namely that even while they're chained in the cave and looking at shadows on the wall, they are considered not as materially existing human beings. Mm -hmm. Because obviously, Mm -hmm. if I'm going to eat, someone's going to have to put in front of me a real thing that is not a shadow (laughs) because I can't eat shadows. Or I have to imagine some technology a la The Matrix to show that I could be fed in a way that I'm not aware that I'm being fed. And then maybe my eating would be also projected as a shadow on the wall. And so there is a way in which even the people stuck in the world around us are considered in this story to be non-material beings without material needs and without apparently material desires and, and so on. I mean, this may just be a literary point, but don't you think, in part, the reason that Plato and Socrates are not bothered by giving all these details, you know, what about the food? What about going to the bathroom? What about the atrophied muscles, et cetera, (laughs) is because 
it's not really the point, right? right? I mean, the whole point is that this is not a real world. This world is not important in a way. And we just need to get, the only important point is getting out of it. Right. Yes, but it, it does say something about the way that philosophy thinks about the truth, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And the way in which vision sort of stands in for knowledge in general in this mm. and the mm-hmm. way in which other senses and the body's existence can be sort of written off as not really having anything to do with this narrative of truth and religion. It's all about shadows and light. It's all mm-hmm. about seeing. I mean, there's a thing about echoes too, right. mm-hmm. but that's that's kind of minor. And so it's it goes sight, hearing, and then forget about everything else, <laughs> the senses in terms of their relationship to truth. And, and I was just going to also add for fans of our previous episode about materialism, I mean, we're talking about idealism now. We didn't really sketch out a big definition, but the underlying assumption that we wouldn't need to talk about the question of the body, its existence, and we can just sort of move on to the more important stuff about what one sees and doesn't see is, in some sense, I think, the idealist bent of this allegory. Mm. Yeah, and of course, there's a whole body of scholarly literature out there that has tried to debunk the idea that Plato has a robust theory of the forms and diminishes the importance of the material world or the apparent world in comparison to the realm of ideas or the ideal world. And I just want to say, for the record, that I am here to rebunk that, (laughs) at least least because, I mean, in this text, it might be the case that there are other places in Plato where arguments could be made that that is not as strongly articulated. But in this text, it seems 100% clear to me that that is a appropriate reading of this text. Yeah. And largely because of this allegory. Yeah, I agree. There is a whole body of scholarly literature that points to this allegory of the cave and, for example, the materiality of all involved, especially the prisoners, and the way in which that materiality is removed from the account. And that removal of the materiality, I agree with you, Lee, is because it's not really the point, but then the question would be, well, what then is the point? And the point seems to be that Plato's a Platonist. In other words, (laughs) Plato's an idealist. And so I have in mind here a philosopher like Luce Irigaray, who will Mm. argue that in a sense, when the prisoners are detached from their materiality, they're also detached from all relation to others. Mm -hmm. This cave then is a sort of empty space in which there is no relation to other human beings. And for her, what's most important is there's no relation to being born, right? To what philosophers call natality. This is a move then from this shadow world to an ideal world, which is, she wants to argue, as much as a mirage as the shadows are, but it's just that Plato puts the word truth on the ultimate mirage of the ideas and therefore denigrates the world of these shadows being projected on the wall. And so this is a story in Plato that a lot of people, I think, come back to, to try to offer a criticism of Plato's philosophy from a wide variety of theoretical and political perspectives. Listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, 
hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. So we've talked about this allegory in terms of how it functions in Plato's text and Plato's way of understanding the world, but I think part of its long afterlife is the way in which it's kind of been adapted, rebooted, remade in popular culture. We've already kind of mentioned The Matrix. So I guess one of the questions I have is like, what about the allegory makes it so susceptible to these reboots? And what are the reboots help tell us about the allegory or how do they expand it or make it into something else, I guess mm. is my question. Mm. Yeah, I think that, and this is something that was mentioned earlier, and I think we're going to have to circle back and take this up again. I think we have to begin with the fact that one of the things that seems to make this compelling, and as Jason said you know, early on, this is the thing that students most often take away from the Republic more than, you know, any of the arguments that go on. You know, what was Glaucon's position about justice and what was Thrasymachus's position about justice? They'll take away this. And I think that it's so takeawayable, that it's so memorable, <laughs> is precisely its story character, that it, mm -hmm. it has a kind of vividness that arguments don't quite have. So I think we should at some point circle back and talk about the relationship between storytelling in this text and philosophical argumentation, because as both of you have pointed out at different times, this is a text in which Plato criticizes storytelling precisely on the basis of it being an image of an image of an image. But anyhow, this story raises a lot of issues, I think, that a lot of people grapple with at some point in their lives and some people frequently. One of the main ones is the question, is this all there is? Is there nothing besides this? Or how do I know when I claim to know something? What are the conditions for knowledge? And could I check my knowledge? Do I know that I know? And I think people do frequently ask that question. I, I'm afraid in the U.S. at least less and less these days, but, but I think it is a question people confront. And then I think there are more interesting things like, what if this all is a mirage? What if, and as a more recent analytic philosopher would put it, what if we are just brains in a vat? What difference would that make to my life? What difference would that make to my engagement with the world? What difference would that make ethically? And what difference would that make politically? And I think that's something that people also think about. These are a lot of the questions that the film The Matrix puts on the table, which I would argue is a kind of retelling of the allegory of the cave with some nefarious machines thrown in. <laughs> So for listeners who have not seen The Matrix, first of all, what have you been doing? But if you haven't seen The Matrix, The Matrix sort of frames this as a red pill, blue pill. You know, you get this choice to either continue on your life as it is inside of The Matrix, inside of this virtual reality, or to see the truth, I guess, of the other world. But I don't really think that the Matrix is so hung up on which world is true. Mm. You know, the fact that people aren't force fed one of the pills, you mm -hmm. know, they, they make a choice to right. continue on in a world that they're perfectly 
satisfied with as real or another world that is also a kind of reality. I think that actually is a really pressing question today. And I just want to, okay, so I haven't thought this all the way through, but I want to put this to you guys. All right, I'm holding on to my bar seat. (laughs) I'm trying to rethink this story from the perspective of the people in the cave. And it reminds me a lot of, you see these videos on TikTok and Twitter all the time of parents who have these kids who are like playing Fortnite 24 hours a day Mm. or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, the parents come in and shut the television off or take the controller away from them and the kids just lose it. Mm. Right. And and you hear the parents say, it's not even the real world. Go outside. You're just sitting in front of a television, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, basically they're making Plato's argument. Right. (laughs) Right. And, you know, I, I think that there's good reason to empathize a bit with the kids in this. I mean, their kids claim that it's not an unreal world. Right. My friends are here. This is meaningful to me. You know, I'm doing something. Whereas if I go outside, nobody, none of my friends are going to be out there, (laughs) you know, because they're, they're all here. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know how to just go do things in your world, your real world. Right. I know how to do things in this world. And so, yeah. So yeah, they're going to be kicking and screaming when you just shut off the fire and say, go outside. And oh, by the way, it hurts, but yeah, just go anyway. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like probably the kids do have atrophied, you know, leg muscles. I don't know. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I do think that this, again, comes down to Plato's paranoia about poetry. And I mean poetry generally. So today that would be film, novels, video games, virtual reality and all of its iterations, including social media that, you know, he just thinks none of this is real. Right. And so, like, that, we just have to drag you kicking and screaming away from it and not even stop for a second and have a conversation about what is valuable about it. Right. I mean, Lee, since you brought up Fortnite, it reminded me that one thing in the allegory that we didn't talk about is that the people in the cave, Plato says, have contests where they identify different shadows and sounds mm-hmm. and they reward the people who can perceive the best. So there is a sociality within the cave. They have these shadow sound games, right? And the, and that plays a role in, in Plato's story because once the person goes is dragged into the light, they come down. They can't play the shadow game at all anymore. It all just looks like pointless and it all just looks like shadow. Right. So there is a sort of like – perspective i mean first of all there's is a sociality there but there's also the sense that like once you leave the cave the cave looks fake to you it looks like meaningless and pointless right mm-hmm. but i guess the other thing in terms of thinking about the matrix is the one thing that plato's version is sorely lacking in is a reason for why all this is happening in the first place it's just kind of a once upon a time mm. there was this cave right and right. the various attempts to sort of update and reboot the story, the Matrix, they live, always add a sort of socio or economic reason for it that there's something that the people in the cave don't want you to see, right? What They don't want you to see the machines that are living off of us, the aliens that are exploiting us, right. et cetera. And I think that that dimension, it changes a lot mm. because as we were talking about earlier, is living a fake life necessarily bad? But here we're not talking about just fake life anymore. We're talking a life in which you are being used to power some machine or you're 
energy is being used or your work is being used to make the aliens rich in the they live version. And by the way, they live just the best version of the kicking and screaming. The fight scene <laughs> between Roddy Piper and Keith David is, I think, the best version of how you have to be dragged kicking and screaming into the light if you haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that also reminds me of one question that I've always had since I very first read The Allegory of the Cave as an undergraduate, which is, why does the guy who goes back into the cave, why does he go to the prisoners? Why doesn't he go to the puppet masters and be <laughs> right. like, you know, like, stop, what are you doing? You know? And, and I do actually think that this is evidence of what is sometimes a kind of deficiency among idealists in thinking about political philosophy is to think, oh, really what needs to happen is just everyone needs to be enlightened. Everyone needs to become mm -hmm. philosophers mm -hmm. and not we need to go down and try to figure out why this world is being constructed into what ends and for what purposes, which the prisoners can't tell you. But somebody needs to go to the puppet master and be like, who's signing your paycheck, dude? Why are you here? <laughs> yeah. What is this job? Yeah. And and why are you involved, you know, as a mid-level bureaucrat in this operation of social oppression? Yeah. What's your end yeah. in all of this? I agree. And for me, the character in The Matrix, I can't remember the character's name, but he's the one who decides he wants to go back into The Matrix. And mm -hmm. so he betrays his comrades who are all outside of The Matrix. I've always found his arguments compelling. Like mm -hmm. one of the things he says is, I miss the taste of real food. Well, mm -hmm. real Matrix food. All of these sensory experiences were much better as images than they are in real life. And why shouldn't I prefer that? Why should I be enlightened? I think Jason's right that The Matrix does put an explanation on this, namely the machines in The Matrix are using us as batteries, basically, and that's why we live in the world we live in. But the question I think that The Matrix asks, and let me be clear, I think only the first Matrix is interesting. I think the next two are not as interesting as the first one. But the question that it asks is, okay, if you knew the truth, which choice would you make? Would you make the choice to be in the truth, in the real world, so-called, or would you make the truth to be in the Matrix? And I think the Matrix, the fundamental argument is you would have to prefer the truth. You would have to prefer reality to the world of images, the virtual world, the shadow world, etc. I'm unconvinced. <laughs> I'm unconvinced <laughs> as well. But nobody ever says, I don't think so, Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> no, and for those of you who haven't read a lot of Plato, almost all of the characters in these conversations, the role they play is is mostly in this way of like cheering Socrates on and saying, yes, indeed, that must be the case. And by the God, Socrates, you're so brilliant. And I never <laughs> thought about that before. And, you know, so on. So there's, there's not a real conversation frequently in these texts. But the other thing that Matrix does in updating Plato is that, you know, once uh, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, you know, is liberated and goes back in, he doesn't go back in and just sort of say, hey, everyone, this is fake. He goes back in and he really ultimately becomes a superhero, right? Because he knows 
that the rules of this reality are, are a construct. There's no actual gravity. It only appears like there's gravity. He can fly. Like mm-hmm. the speed of bullets is itself fabricated. He can dodge bullets. He can master any martial art. He can fly a helicopter if he needs to. He can do it. He basically, like, one of the things I like about that movie is it kind of like offers a weird justification of the action movie genre, anyways. Like, this is why the guy never gets shot. This is why the guy <laughs> seems to know how to yeah. deal with any weapon in any vehicle because there's someone downloading stuff to him and the way in which you know you go back into the cave and you actually utilize the distortions of the cave against it. Go back to teaching this. When I taught this in philosophy literature last semester, you know, I pose a sort of the classic and you know not very interesting problem though. Side note, my first philosophical essay was on the Republic and the paradox of the allegory in a book that rejected poetry. So shout out to Morris Kaplan. I believe he's still <laughs> teaching at SUNY Purchase, Intro to Political Philosophy. Long story. I should have got into philosophy right away, but wow, I went off topic there. But he was too busy <laughs> kicking and screaming. <laughs> the point being, my students said their solution to this is, well, why does he tell the allegories? Because we're all still in the cave. And when you go into the cave, you have to be able to speak cave talk. And to some extent, the allegory is Plato speaking cave talk to us, right? And the cave talk is precisely the fact that it tells a really memorable and convincing sort of story that can be retold and rebooted in terms of our concerns about other types of illusions and reality. If that's true, I guess my question is – And this is also a question for The Matrix, which also in its own way is a kind of cave talk because it speaks the language of blockbuster action cinema, is does speaking the language of cave talk get us out of the cave or does it just become another shadow on the wall? Can you do both? Can you both be an entertaining shadow and get people to turn towards the light? I think it might just be cave talk all the way down, right? Because (laughs) this is a poetic story told – in a story about Socrates, in a story about a conversation that they had, in a story about justice, in a story about truth and the good. This is, of course, always the problem when you're talking about Plato as an idealist who rejects poetry is, you know, why is he writing in dialogues? Why is he using a fictionalized character? I mean, a real historical person, but a fictionalized version of that person to tell stories about truth in a poetic genre, you know, so I don't know that you can get out of it. It just does seem like, as you say, cave talk all the way down. (laughs) But assuming Lee's position, which I think has to be right, that this text as a whole written as a play in which there are characters who are fictionalized and the conversation is probably fictionalized and so on. But within that drama, part of what goes on is argumentation, right? A kind of logical step-by-step, if this is true, then isn't that true? And if that's true, then therefore this must be true, which reads in a completely different way than this literary part. And so then the question is, are those arguments then also allegories? Are arguments just another use of literary or poetic language, but like the meter is different and the, you know, the rules of composition are different? In a sense, if it's allegory all the way down, then what do we do about the arguments that go on in this text? I mean, I think we have to think about this as not a contrast between true and untrue or real and apparent but about different kinds of truth and different kinds of realities. And 
in that sense, going back to the matrix, it is about which you prefer. Do you prefer the red pill or do you prefer mm. the blue pill? And if we put it in that context, then I think it makes sense to frame all of this in an allegory where the image of the sun represents not the truth, but the good. So I see philosophical truth as a more good, a better good than artistic truth. Or I see a reality like that outside the cave as a better reality, a more good reality than that inside the cave. Now that I can swallow, although I still think Socrates is an asshole in getting that point across. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Socrates is always an asshole, but um, <laughs> that's just me. And also Nietzsche, I think. What's interesting, Lee, that you point out, and I never thought about this before in the relation between the allegory and the matrix, is that this preference that I have to decide is actually in both of them, I have to decide without knowing one of the options, right? Mm -hmm. I only know the matrix and I have to choose whether I want to see what is real without knowing what I'm buying when I decide that. And so I'm making a decision, it seems, for the real itself or for the true itself without knowing what that world looks like at all. And similarly, in the allegory of the cave, the one that's brought, as we keep saying, screaming and kicking, they don't know what's out there. And so their movement out of the cave is a movement into a great unknown. Like, who knows what's out there? Maybe I'm going to be eaten by a hyena. <laughs> yeah, and I think because Socrates is only ever talking to patsies and not anybody that would, you know, have a real conversation, that he doesn't follow that logic all the way through to see that this very allegory would justify many stories about what is real and what is true that are contrary to what he and, by extension, Plato think. So, I mean, think about how St. Paul writes in his, one of his epistles, you know, now we see as if through a glass darkly, right? Mm -hmm. But then mm -hmm. we will really see, you know, now we only know shadows, then we will know the truth. Clearly, as a way of justifying a reality and a truth that he believes is good, the good, that I'm positive Socrates would say is a story, is that St. Paul is still in the cave. Right. And I think it's interesting to think about, the, speaking about the Matrix and the afterlife of this kind of allegory, the way in which red pill has become the preferred term for the whole world of like men's rights activists and so mm -hmm. on. It's become sort of instrumental to various types of conspiracy theories where the very notion of a shadow world and a true world which isn't apparent and which looks false and looks confused to those who are who are too accustomed to the shadows is an idea which you know if it has a politics it's adaptable to so many different versions mm -hmm. right it doesn't really attach itself to any specific idea about what the content of that truth is and what the kind of world you're advocating for you can make anything into your illusion i mean this is why you know uh, john carpenter director of They Live, has to keep explaining that no, you know, he was not making an anti-Semitic argument in They Live. He says, I'm talking about, I was talking about, you know, yuppies and the Reagan revolution. But apparently, once you tell this story, once you tell a story about there's this apparent world, people are too caught up in the shadows, there's a truth that only I possess, the politics of that can be adapted to pretty much anything. Yeah, there's only one main structure in this, and that is that from the perspective of the decision about what reality is, 
everyone who does not accept the truth of that is then sheeple. Right. And so the world is set up that either you know the truth or you're sheeple, and it doesn't matter what that truth, it's adaptable to whatever truth. Right. Although, I mean, there is in the Republic a kind of prequel to the allegory of the cave, and that is the story of the shipbuilder. Mm. And one of the things that's interesting about the shipbuilder story, which is so this guy builds a ship, but he's not qualified to captain it. He's looking for a captain. And Plato says, well, there are these two different people. One is this person who can really talk up the shipbuilder, is a smooth talker. They make him the captain. But there's the other person who really understands navigation, but he or she is dismissed as a stargazer because they're always just looking up at the sky. And what does the sky have to do with a ship? It's They're totally disconnected. But one of the things that's in the prequel, it's not in the allegory, is that if you trust the smooth talker, sooner or later, your ship crashes or gets stuck in a storm or gets totally lost, right? There's the idea that the knowledge of the idealized world there, the world of stars, has some real bearing and effect on Mm -hmm. the world of fabrication, right? To know, to be able to see the true reality has an effect in the world of illusions, right? And I think that's an important point that gets kind of lost or gets kind of written out of the allegory. In the allegory, truth just seems pointless to those who are in the cave, right? You come Mm -hmm. down, you say, there's all this other stuff, and they say, we we shouldn't trust you. You can't even identify shadows anymore. You're like, you're stumbling around in the dark. Why should we listen to you? But the shipbuilder story seems to suggest that knowledge about the actual reality should have an effect even in the cave, Mm -hmm. which I think the allegory doesn't really have a way to do that. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, Just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. I think you all know that I'm on record as being a staunch materialist. Hi, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) I am not an Hegelian. Um, I am not someone who is invested in any kind of idealism. But I'm wondering if there isn't one crucial point that we're not missing in Plato's presentation of a kind of idealist push in philosophy. And that is... When you look at the prisoners, either in their initial condition or in relation to the one who comes back and cannot even pick apart these images and say what they are, in both cases, what is is accepted as reality and the way that things simply are and they cannot be otherwise and they have to be this way. And the only way it seems to me that I could engage in a sort of critical analysis, you know, why do you say that this is true? Why do you say that this is good? The only way I can do that is with, I would say, just a little bit of an idealist push to my thinking, namely to say, okay, what if we assume that there is something like goodness itself or the good itself? What if we assume that there's something like what's really true versus what merely appears to be true? 
Doesn't that allow us to take a critical stance toward the world in which we find ourselves? Don't we need, in other words, to borrow a little bit from outside the cave just so that we could say, wait a second, something's not right here? I agree with you, Rick. I also think one of the great virtues of Platonic idealism is that it encourages in us a desire to find what the good in itself is or Mm. the true in itself is. My concern with the prisoners in the cave is not so much that they're comfortable in a world of appearances, but that they're being deceived. And I think that having in you a desire to, no matter how comfortable you are, to be aware that you might be being deceived and to look around every now and then, even if it's uncomfortable, you might try to look around and realize that your neck is chained, for example, (laughs) and you might have questions about why that is the case. (laughs) You know, um, I don't necessarily think that you have to sign on to the hard version of the theory of the forms and the form of the truth and the form of the good to still take it as an inspiration to pay attention to the way that you and others might be being deceived. Yeah, that's a clearer way of saying what I said as sort of borrowing a little bit from idealism (laughs) in order to say, wait, wait, what, what is this thing around my neck? Going back to what you were saying earlier, Lee, and something that I think Lily and Lana Wachowski and, and John Carpenter got that like the problem with the allegory of the cave is that it believes that the truth will set you free and that truth itself is liberation. I mm-hmm. think the emphasis on deception means that when you go back to the cave, don't go back down to the prisoners and try to convince them they're in a cave. Go find the puppet masters and you know start kicking some ass are the puppet masters <laughs> and liberate people that way. I came here to chew gum and kill puppet masters. <laughs> and I'm all out of gum. Exactly. That's where liberation comes from, addressing the deception and the manufacturers of deception, not just presenting people with the truth because – when you present people the truth and something Plato got right, you're going to seem like you're stumbling around in the dark because the truth that you're speaking of has no relation to the shadows people see. So better to address yourself to the puppet masters than the audience. I also just want to mention that I think one thing that is really underutilized in this allegory of the cave is a lesson about friendship. Mm. The fact that the guy who leaves the cave goes back into the cave, you know, even if it's to tell his friends that they're being deluded, and even if he just has to walk right by the puppet masters to do that, he still goes back down. And we can only think that he goes back down because he cares about them in some way. And, you know, and I think that that is something like you just never hear people use the allegory of the cave to talk about that, Mm -hmm. to talk about how none of us arrives at the truth all by ourselves. You know, some of us have to be dragged kicking and screaming by our friends. And some of us have to go back and find our friends and drag (laughs) them kicking and screaming. But it's the friendship, the fact that because I care about the truth and because I care about the good and because I also care about you, this is, you know, not a solo project for me. Yeah. And on that note, we care about you, our (laughs) listeners. We keep coming back down to the cave of your ear holes uh, every week to deliver the the truth. And in the spirit of friendship and support, we also need your help in delivering this because it takes resources to get back down into the cave. So you can support us. Patreon.com slash Hotel Bar Sessions. There are many different levels to keep us coming back down into the cave week after week 
to deliver our truth, or maybe it's a puppet show. That's up for you or to decide. Or just talk cave talk. <laughs> just talk cave talk. I also want to mention, because this is our last episode of season six, I think we want to give a round of applause to our new co-host, Jason Reed, who yes. has absolutely smashed it this season. Woo-hoo. Jason, this has been so great. I'm happy to announce that Jason is staying on with us. I think he's dragging us somewhere. We're not really sure, but it's towards Spinoza, whatever it is. (laughs) But we'll be taking a couple of weeks off before we come back with season seven. In the meantime, we're going to drop some classic episodes of the (laughs) podcast so you could go back and hear some of our greatest hits. All right, guys, I will catch you on season seven right back here at the bar. I don't need a ride. I'm going to fly home. I'm staying in the cave. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. Good night. Good night.